I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Welcome to Sick Boy, a podcast where we talk about what it's like to be sick. This week's guest is Dr. Brian Goldman. He's a Canadian emergency physician and the host of CBC's White Coat Black Art and The Dose. Let's talk about it. Okay. You know, it's one of those days. We're having one of those days over here. Uh, I was having a great day, but then, but then uh, we ran into a little bit of a technical difficulty. Brian, uh, Brian Goldman, our, our esteemed guest who, uh, who's with us right now, also having a bit of an off day. But we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna fucking shake that shit up, and we're going to sit down and have a wicked conversation that I am absolutely ecstatic for. Because what I was saying just moments ago, go before we realized we weren't recording was that <laughs> I am very excited about this conversation for the sole purpose and the reason that uh, uh, Dr. Goldman, you have been a you have been a dream guest of Sick Boy Podcast for since the day this show started. Um, I know Brian Stever has been a massive fan of uh, of your show on CBC, um, and we just went through a whole. Uh, rigmarole of you introducing yourself <laughs> that that is now off in the ether, uh, but and you did such a good job. Why don't you try it again? Uh, same, you know, my, my favorite line in television that maybe you've heard in in your in your line of work in the media. Um, same thing, but uh, but different. Yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about, Jeremy. Um, and and. You know, outtakes are are uh, are our specialty, and uh, and you know the only thing that that people are who didn't who didn't get to witness that conversation will have missed are all the f bombs. Yes, that's right, that's right, that's right. So that I've now so, so fortunately gotten out of my system. So so sorry about that. You will be missing that, but that's too bad. Anyway, Doctor Goldman, you're not on the CBC right now. You can, you can drop f bombs as much as you want. Well, fuck that. Here we go. Okay, here we are. All right. Okay, so so a little bit about me. Uh, I am a grizzled veteran of emergency medicine. I've been practicing emergency medicine since the mid 1980s, uh, and I'm looking at you guys, and I can tell you that that I've been practicing longer than you've been on the earth, which is you know, and and I'm actually I'm now working with some of the children of my classmates. And, and the children of my classmates are not 19 or 20. They are 30 or 32. Mm -hmm. Some of them are even 35. So, so that's how old I am. Uh, but I'm young at heart. <laughs> and so I've been working, I've been doing emergency medicine since then. And I, you know, I continue to work there. Uh, on the front lines of COVID-19. Uh, I don't want to date this too much, uh, but I think COVID-19 is going to be with us for a long time anyway, one way or another. So that's part of the work that we do. Uh, and in addition to that, I have this other career in the media. I've been hosting White Coat Black Art for 13 years. White Coat Black Art is basically a show about the experience of patients. We tell stories of patients and their families in the context or the in the culture of modern medicine. Mm 
which means that I talk about, uh, you know, warts and all, pull back the curtain and reveal the innermost thoughts and feelings of healthcare professionals and, you know, call them out when they, when they aren't at their best, but try to explain them to the rest of the world. So that's, that's white coat black art. And then for the last three months, uh, I have been privileged to also host a new podcast by the name of The Dose. And The Dose is very different from White Coat Black Art. White Coat Black Art is patient stories and and what they mean in the culture of modern medicine. The Dose is practical advice uh, that usually crystallizes with a burning question. So, for instance, you know, our show this week is, uh, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm suffering from, uh, you know, emotional distress because of the coronavirus, because of the pandemic. What can I do about that? Mm. And, and so it's filled with practical advice. And, and the show, you know, the, the podcast launched uh, a few months ago, and it seems to be doing pretty well. Uh, now, in addition to that, I do, I, you know, I have a third hat, uh, and that is as book author. And I've published three books. My first book was The Night Shift, Real Life in the Heart of the ER. And the second one was The, second, the Secret Language of Doctors, which is a book uh, about uh, really a deep dive into the culture of modern medicine as expressed or explained by the slang terms that, that health professionals use to describe patients and describe situations and colleagues uh, that, that, that evoke an emotional response in them. Uh, and then, you know, I kind of had to wash that book out of my system. And to do that, I wrote a third book called The Power of Kindness, which is basically my professional and personal search for empathy and kindness in the world. And it was a deliberate pivot away from an examination of empathy in hospitals. Mm. Uh, in fact, in fact, the publisher wisely said, go out into the world and look for kindness and empathy in, in trailers and in casinos and in subways and in elevators and on everyday people mm. you meet on the street and in donut shops. And I did that. And I'm forever grateful to, to, um, uh, to the publisher for having me do that. Uh, that book is a very successful book. <clears throat> now, interestingly, I have a new book called The Last Kindness. It's actually a booklet. It's a chapter that I had to surgically remove from The Power of Kindness. It is all about the last days of my mother's life. And uh, it's about, you know, there's a, there's a kind of a spiritual mystical thing that happens there. But it's also about my sister and I letting go uh, and then finally tuning in on the last day of my mother's life as to why she was why she might be hanging on mm -hmm. uh, for for dear life and why she wasn't ready to let go and mm. and the reason why and what happened is I'm not going to spoil it you got to read it it costs 99 <laughs> cents on Amazon so it's not exactly <laughs> difficult to purchase. I was, I was saying earlier that I, I read that and I was really, um, surprised that they, that they asked you to remove that from the power of kindness. And, um, but, and I, and I want to dive into, um, without spoiling it, maybe some of the things that you took away from that, um, uh, maybe later in this conversation, because there's something else that's kind of, uh, uh, striking me right now. And, you know, you kind of joked about the fact that, um, all three of us weren't born when you started practicing medicine and, you know, you're involved with, uh, the media that you do around, you know, white coat, black art is really examining the, the culture of, of medicine. And I'm really curious, um, what some of the biggest shifts you've seen, uh, in the culture of way that people practice, in, in, including in relationship to like, um, practicing empathy as, uh, doctors 
in the hospital. Um, what, what are some of the shifts that you've seen in the lifespan of your career so far? Well, you know, there, there have certainly been, there've been a number of, I think, major shifts, uh, in, in the way we practice medicine. You know, I think that, uh, there's no question that, and, and there are, and some of these are going to sound contradictory. Some of these are opposing forces, um, uh, you know, moving us in different directions. You know, I think that, that, um, you know, when I started practicing emergency medicine, it was much more of a solo practice. And now it's much more about a team. You know, mm. for instance, uh, you know, whether or not I, I uh, manage the airway of a patient, um, I now have a choice. There's now a respiratory therapist who might be a lot better at starting people on a ventilator than, than, than I am because that's all they do. Mm-hmm. Um, when I started, there were just emergency physicians. And today we now have nurse practitioners and physician assistants. And, you know, people, you know, might be confused by the letters, you know, NPs and PAs and nurse practitioners are independent. They have an independent scope of practice, which is actually pretty similar to ours. Uh, you know, they can prescribe medication so they don't have to counter – we don't have to countersign their their prescriptions. They can make requests for consultations, but they do work alongside us and we work in a team. Physician assistants uh, are unregulated. It doesn't mean they're unprofessional, but it, it means they don't have their own college, which means that that they practice under my direct authority or the direct authority of my, co- of my colleagues in the emergency department. And And so we have a lot of other people. Uh, who are now working alongside us and 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 so we work more in a team mm. uh, and and so that's that's a big change compared to to uh, you know to to when I started um, the I would say that that emergency physicians and I'm going to talk a lot about emergency medicine just because I know that more than than most of the other fields uh, you know we are still trying very hard to to be the masters of our of our of the place where we work to to create the illusion that we know everything about everything you know it's been mm. said about emergency physicians that their knowledge is um a mile wide and an inch deep uh, and 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 <laughs> mm. and yes you know in the profession in the specialty known as emergency medicine they try to to maintain the illusion that that we know everything about everything and that means that sometimes we're trying to to compete knowledge wise with surgeons, gynecologists, with internists, with critical care specialists. And some of us are much better at that than others. You know, I think, I think that, that I, I, you know, I believe that we can't know everything anymore. We can't know every medication, every dosage. And I think, I think it's absurd to try to pretend that you can memorize through algorithms and, 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 uh, you know, and, 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 uh, and pharmacopoeias every, you know, every drug, every test to know the sensitivity and specificity of everything. Really, we need to know where to look it up. And, Mm -hmm. and, you know, I, you know, I think it's, it's important that we practice with humility, but Mm -hmm. I still think that a lot of my colleagues are stuck on that. They're perfectionistic. They are shame prone. I know we're, I'm, I'm, you know, there's a lot of stuff to to unpack here. Psychologically, uh, I believe that we continue to be recruiting the best and the brightest. Mm -hmm. And, and, and that puts an increasing burden on the people who are graduating. It's like survivor guilt. I got into medical school and 10,000 of my, of my cohort did not. So I better live up to this 
expectation. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, you can, you can, I don't know if you're feeling the pressure because as I'm communicating it, that's a lot of pressure for my young colleagues to, to have to try to live with. Those are some of the differences. I know you want to jump in, so jump in. But, but yeah, it's well, like, I, it's, I, I was, so, I was going to say that, you, you know, you, you, t- you've, for people that that haven't seen it, I I really implore you to maybe even pause right now um, and go watch uh, Brian's TED Talk. Wait, which was I mean, now it was almost a decade ago. Now, two thousand eleven, I think, was when when you gave it. Um, yeah. And you really you really do touch on like this culture of 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 like pressure that that med students and 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 doctors just in general are supposed to like live up to, and the the culture of like of shame surrounding like, like the fact that doctors make mistakes and, and, and you know, you're, you're human and, and the, the issues that, that come with that shame and, and not having the ability to like, to speak to that and to learn from that. Um, you know, you, you, you clearly, I mean, it's, it's very obvious in your passion that like you, you are on this like mission to change the, the perspective or change the narrative or change the, the, the conversation surrounding the culture within medicine. Um, and I, 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 you know, I, 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 it just, it makes me very curious to know, like, do you, do you, do you, have you faced a lot of backlash from the medical community? You know, it's like, like your, 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 your book, the secret language of doctors. Um, when you describe that book, I was kind of like, Sounds like is, they don't is, want you to, it, to say yeah, that. Yeah, <laughs> I was like, is Brian Goldman like the pen and teller of magic? You know, like, are you revealing the fucking secrets that people are like, yeah. whoa, 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 don't like, don't, don't, don't reveal that to the world. You know, I, like how much pushback do you get for, for, for the type of, of, uh, of messages that you're trying to push forward? Well, you know, there are a lot of messages. Um, I can say that. Uh, that, you know, if you want to talk about the book for, for like 10 seconds, I think it's worth saying that my colleagues did not like that book. Right. Uh, they didn't buy it. I mean, the book was briefly a bestseller because it had a good, it had a nice push, a nice media push. And after that, um, you know, I've had people who are my friends on Twitter who've said, I like you, but I hated that book. And part of the reason why they hated it is because, is because it represented a side of the culture of medicine that, that, uh, that, that they thought the world uh, shouldn't hear about, or that even if it's true, you know, some of them, some of them deny that any of the language that they heard that, that they, that anyone ever spoke it anywhere. And, and, you know, I can't verify, you know, I wasn't there as a fly on the wall as the, uh, you know, as the, as the language was being used. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I, uh, I, I, when people say that's we, that's a term we use, I have no reason to think that they don't. Mm-hmm. Uh, why would they tell me to embellish it? Maybe. But, but the, 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 I think, I think the idea is that, is that they acknowledge that, that, that if there are some people in the culture of medicine who, who, who don't represent that kind of heroic streak, of you know martyrdom, self sacrifice, never criticizing patients. Um, you know, uh, I'm sorry, but behind uh, you know behind closed doors, doctors criticize patients all the time. Mm-hmm. They criticize them for being late. They criticize them for for habitually uh, bringing a shopping list of twenty things they want to discuss in a ten minute appointment yeah. when it's patent or, or or saving the most important thing as the you know it's called the doorknob moment 
Mm. You know, when the mm. doctors got their hand on the doorknob and they're leaving the room and that's when they, you know, they've been talking about this, this ringing in my ears that I've had for the last 27 years. And you've talked about it 17 times before and we've dealt with it and I've sent it, I've sent you to five specialists and they've all come back saying there's nothing organically wrong with you. And then at the end of that conversation, you know, they've talked about it again. That's the moment when they say I'm having a little bit of discomfort in my chest. You know, right, like heart disease, right, right, like a heart right. attack. Yeah. Now you tell me. Yeah, you know, it's, yeah, yeah. it's so funny yeah, because yeah, yeah. we literally had a conversation yesterday um, <laughs> with somebody who had uh, anal cancer, and they were mm. they were saying that they actually went in to have uh, a breast exam, and on the way out the door, they were like, "At least, uh, at least now I can still worry about the lump on my bikini line." And the doctor was like, "Come back inside." Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and that's, yeah. And that's how she that's found right. out she had yeah. the anal cancer. That is. And, yeah. And, yeah. and by the way, when it comes to when it comes to shaming. Yeah. <laughs> um, the interesting thing about that is that is that you learn to watch what you say because yeah. you know, especially in social media. Mm-hmm. Um, I I once I had a conversation. I tweeted out, and you can learn a lot about people by by, by the things they tweet. Every once in a while, you tweet something and you kind of go, mm, "I wish I hadn't said that." So mm-hmm. I tweeted the the something that I've referred to as the no but history. You know, when like there, there's there's nothing more uh, demonstrative in many cases of the doctor being in charge than when they do a closed when they when they start asking a patient questions with closed questions like, you know, like the patient says they have chest pain and you're wondering do they have a blood clot in their lungs you know all these terrible things do they have do they have are they having a heart attack um, does the pain radiate you know to your jaw does it go down your left arm are you sweating did it make you sweat did it make you short of breath did it make you nauseated and you can see the a lot of these turn into very closed questions so you you ask a question you know does the does the, do you feel the pain in your jaw no but but my ears ring when i pass water um are you short of breath? No, but I have, uh, but I get diarrhea once in a while when I eat the wrong kind of uh, nuts. And so I, I tweeted out the no but history, like where where the, where where it appears to to me or it sounds to me as if the answer to every one of those questions is a complete non sequitur. Yeah, right. And that we're I'm not getting any information, right? <laughs> well, I tweeted that out. And I think some of my colleagues might have agreed, but a lot there was a backlash. A lot of people of on social media said. Brian, that means you're asking the wrong questions and you're not picking up on cues from the patient. Mm. So somewhere there has to be a meeting of minds and there and there's and there's no meeting of minds there and and they may be right. The fact is they may be right. I mean, is that but, the is that the is that the, the 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 person, you know, when you ask a question, like a person wants to be able to answer it. Like they want to be able to give you something. So it so it ends up being like well, absolutely no to the specific question that you that you asked, but because I feel like I need to tell you something, <laughs> my my niece my niece was born on June seventeenth. If that yeah, plays yeah. a role in anything, I'll buy that. I'm prepared to buy that. I think I think there's a lot, yeah. and you know what? And 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 you know, we also have to listen very carefully for the patient who pleases you by agreeing with mm-hmm. something because right. the last thing you want to do is 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 have them agree with you when right. in fact. Their, their symptoms are very, very different. Mm-hmm. And, and there's no question. And I, you know, with, a, with, with great humility, I'll say it, it may very well be that that no, but mm-hmm. answer is coming from a, from a place, uh, where, where it begins with me asking a, a closed question and they're not sure that they understand what the question's mm-hmm. all about. And, and, it, and, and I have so missed the mark on their experience and their reason for coming to see me that, that, uh, mm-hmm. that, that it's, 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 it's more my problem. Do you, um, do you, with, with your, 
when you were kind of describing the culture of medicine and when like, to kind of like a to to kind of um, expand upon Brian's first question there on like how the culture has changed over the years, it seems like in your description of that 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 the the role of the emergency physician from when you started practicing to now has sort of expanded from this um, sort of lonely island uh, sort of scenario as you as the physician to 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 this you know this group and this team of people that all support each other. Um, do do you feel like that culture of pressure uh, uh, on you know doctors and doctors coming into the emergency medical system has has changed over time because of the knowledge that they are going that they are entering into a profession that has more support in 2020 that they have the people um, like nurse practitioners or physicians assistants that are there to that are there to support them and back them up so that they don't need to know every little thing that goes on um, and and be the the sort of master of every detail. You know, that's interesting. I, 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 you know, I, I didn't graduate last year or five years ago, so I can't, I can't speak for them. You know, certainly I think they're acculturated to work in teams if that's what they have, if that's their experience. Uh, keep in mind that some of them will end up in more, you know, in less serviced, well, in less well-serviced areas, which means that they're going to end mm. up uh, working in places where they may be alone. They may be by themselves. Right. I'm thinking of people mm. in rural emergency departments where they may be pretty much on their own uh, for much of, of their shift. And, you know, there may be nurse mm. practitioners working a few hours a week, but not all the time. And, you know, nurse practitioners and physician assistants have not arrived in every emergency department simultaneously uh, throughout the country. So, so, so keep that in mind. Um, I think that, um, you know, even though the the words are spoken that medical knowledge is doubling every couple of years, three or four years, and you can't possibly know everything, um, that those are empty words to a perfectionist, to somebody who is defensive about being called out for making a mistake, defensive about being wrong, or even about a faux pas you know, mispronouncing somebody's name or, 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 or saying something that sounds like they come from a privileged background and they don't understand what it's like to, 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 to be going to medical school and, or to be a patient who, who doesn't know where their next meal is coming from or, or, or who doesn't have stable housing or doesn't have stable employment. Uh, and, and, um, and 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 I guess the point I'm trying to make is that despite massive changes in medicine, more technological, more knowledge based, that that you still have the doctor, the medical student who thinks they can know, learn and know everything. The ego. And the, well, it's ego. It's also it's I you know, I think it's shame based. You know, it's toxic shame. And and, you know, I can't prove this, but I think many Health professionals go into the health professions and whether it's nursing or paramedicine, medicine, mm. you know, physiotherapy, occupational therapy, because they have that inferiority complex, because they are terrified that they're about to be discovered as unworthy. You know, we talk about the imposter syndrome. They're going to be somebody's going to tap them on the shoulder and say, you know, uh, not you that we made a mistake. You're you don't belong here. And 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 they're and they're terrified. And so so one of the reasons why they go into the health professional health professions is to do enough good to assuage that to feel, you know, and 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 and, and you know, how do you recognize somebody who's like that? Have you ever criticized a health professional? Have you ever criticized a doctor for being late, 
for for messing up on a diagnosis on your mom or your dad's diagnosis? Have you ever have you ever have you ever criticized, looked them in the eyeball, and said, you know, you did you weren't very competent there? I haven't. I mean, I can't even criticize my fucking like grocery store clerk if they if they like over <laughs> yeah. char- like double charge me. I just see like oh they they. They double, they double swipe the milk. I'm paying for milk twice. Like, oh, and whoopsie. You, and, <laughs> and you know what? I'm, I'm I am, so averse to conflict. I am always, I, I feel, you know, I have, um, I have a number of friends who are in med school. I have, you know, a number of friends who are, are, are uh, practicing physicians in different fields. And I find that, and I don't know if it's because it's the type of person that I'm drawn to in general and doesn't really have to do with their, their practice of medicine, but I'm always, I always feel really drawn to, to people who work in medicine that have almost like a look of inspiration on their face when you ask a question and they say, I don't know. And, and, mm-hmm. and I, and I go, Oh man, I love that you were just totally fine with saying, I'm yeah. not sure, but like, good question. Let's, the, let's chat about it. But the thing that I've been thinking about that is that, so it's interesting because in, in business, I work in corporate training as well. And in, in business, um, one of the, the foundation of building a, 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 successful relationship is trust. And the way that you develop trust is through openness and admitting when it's admitting Mm. your shortcomings is when somebody goes, Oh, okay. You know, (laughs) I I trust that person now they can admit when they don't know the answer. It's like, it's like when my doctor told, it's like when I had my, I had a a hemicolectomy, I had 75% of my large intestine removed. And when I went in for like a follow-up appointment, they also had to remove my 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 gallbladder within that process, and and when I went in to talk to my surgeon like six weeks after the whole process, she she admitted to me she was like, by the way, I, want, I just want to let you know the reason we had to I had to take out your gallbladder is because I fucked up. I actually I actually nicked your gallbladder while I was maneuvering within there, and I I I made a tear on the inside of it. It started to seep out, you know, bile. bile. And we, we brought down the, the, the specialist on gallbladders and he looked at it and said, yeah, that's not fixable. And so I had to take it out and throw it out. And when she told me that, I was like, huh, should you have told me that? Like, (laughs) could I have sued you? I'm, I'm so glad you told me. And I'm, I'm like, I'm, I now trust you so much more. And like, I feel like we're friends now, but like, it it was a bit of like a weird kind of like, wow, that's wow. Thank you for telling me that. But I I want to add, I want to add to the end of my point there was I, cause I was going to say that there is a, but at the same time, because when I go into the ER, I want the doctors to project this like all knowing ability to diagnose and solve every problem that I have and come in there with, you know? Mm -hmm. So it's like, I understand that like, I understand the the humanity of it. They can't possibly know everything. So they therefore Ooh. there will be things that they won't be able to tell me. However, I I do like the idea of them projecting the fact that yeah, like I yeah, come see me. I know everything. I'll solve your problem. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, of Brian, you're the problem. Brian not Gold, Brian not the, Goldman. Okay, so so and, and that's very interesting because then it begs the question, you know, why 
you know, why did my TED talk, why has it had, uh, you know, 1.6 million uh, people who watched it, which mm-hmm. is like watching a car accident. I mean, it's not a pretty, it's not a pretty uh, <laughs> a TED talk. It's not, it's not like a, like it is sort of inspiring, but, but if you think about it, at least the first part of it, it's like, it's like, where's this guy going with all this? It is very breathtaking. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, but, you know, Jeremy, there's a, we, I could pick up on so many points here, but uh, I want to, you know, Jeremy, how would you have felt if that surgeon had said, I had to take out your kidney? Mm-hmm. Well, I, you, you know, I feel, I honestly, like, I truly do feel like I'm a pretty forgiving person. And, 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 and I, I will say this, we, we've had a number of people <laughs> on this show who, who do who, like within conversation with them, they will come out and, and, and speak to the anger that they have felt at their doctors for, for, for fucking up and making a mistake. Yeah. And, and I'm, I'm always the first one to step in and say, right. But listen, we, we like, we got to remember that doctors are hu- like, doctors are just other human. They're, they're other humans. They're just other people. Mm-hmm. You know, like it's, it's, we, we, we tend to look at doctors the way that we look at our parents when we were five yeah. Thinking that like yeah. our parents are, they can do no wrong. They, they know everything. And, and, you know, like, or at least, you know, you're hoping you're looking at your parents like that when you're five. Um, but, but we, and we look at doctors in the same way. And so we, we, we hold them to the standard standard that just doesn't make sense. If the surgeon came back and said, yeah, I had to, I had to remove your kidney. I'd be like, that's crazy. But I also did sign that fucking waiver that basically said, it's okay I trust you. you. I trust you. So <laughs> right. like, just asked, do what you, you got to do. You asked the wrong question. You should have said, Jeremy, what if they said they nicked your penis and they had to remove your penis? <laughs> yeah. Wow. You would have listened to a different response. <laughs> no, I, uh, that's, I mean, that, look, look. Yeah. This is, it's all hypothetical. I want to pick, I want to pick up on one thing, um, that, that, uh, that I think that a lot of health professionals have trouble with patients who are angry at them. <clears throat> Emotionally, they can't handle it. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I think that's where the shame part really comes in. Yeah. The, the idea that, that, you know, they, 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 they are like the, the point I wanted to make is that they are ultra, they are stung by criticism. They are ultra sensitive mm-hmm. to criticism. You, you, if you ever criticize a physician, you're going to get a reaction that is everything but maybe you're right. I apologize. It's it's going to be more like I did the best I could. I worked as hard as I could, and they and they and they will rationalize. We did the best mm. we could. We you, you know you're not the only one here. And all of those responses are are about everything except acknowledging the anger that the person's feeling, mm-hmm. as if you're not allowed to be angry when you're with me. Because damn it, I worked so hard. I'm such a martyr here. And, and like I'm setting this up so that – and and you know what? I don't know if you've noticed like the hero worship that's going on during COVID-19, hero oh, yeah. worship of frontline providers, you know, where they are, you know, where they're walking into danger. Yeah, I'll buy that. In New York City, I'll buy that. They mm. really are without personal protective equipment. But I'm seeing a lot of hero worship that I think is undeserved and unjustified. Oh, uh, wow. You know, I'm yeah, I'm seeing a, I'm okay, seeing a lot of health yeah. professionals that are saying, you know, we're we're working as hard as we can. They're not, you know, in a lot of emergency departments, is it's quieter than it's been for years because right. people just aren't showing up. Right. And and I, you know, I'm not. It's not that that some of them aren't heroic. You know, I really have a lot of time for the health professionals who are helping out in long term care facilities to spell off the personal support workers who who are either burnt out or or have gotten infected and are in isolation and mm. and those underserviced areas. You know, they're 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 amazing. But I think there's a lot of other people who are just 
really expressing their own distress at the constant changing caused by COVID-19, the change to their lifestyle, the change to mm. their work environment, you know, and, and, and I, you know, I think it's a bit unjustified. Do, do you think, really- do you think like, just to touch on that, do you think that some of that, some of that might also come from, cause like, I, so I'm, I'm trying to remove myself from, from the amount of media that I'm taking in that, that surrounds COVID right now, because there's, because there, there tends to be a lot of, um, for lack of a better word, fucking idiots out there, you know, like, like I'm, I'm seeing these like videos of people just acting like so, so dumb, especially South of the border, you know, like these, you know, people just like flooding beaches and just not listening to, to, um, to like the health authorities and whatever. And so, and, 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 and people, you know, people chiming in and saying like, oh, I don't want to get a vaccine because like that vaccine has a chip that the computer chip that'll, that'll make my daughter, Turn into Jeremy. Yeah, what state are you from? I, you know what? It's it's a blend of all the, all the states that are kind of t- ticking me off right now. So so you know, like, do you think that maybe there's a bit of that as a response to like the stupidity of a lot of 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 some of the general population not recognizing that like no th- this is a, this is not a fucking joke. Yeah, you know, I think I think you're on to something. I also think there's something uh, that's even more fundamental. You know that phrase we're in this together. Mm-hmm. And and I you know it's 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 one thing to to kind of pontificate about about how you know people who have uh, you know people who come from vulnerable backgrounds uh, from the marginalized parts of society mm-hmm. people who have precarious housing you know people who uh, live in long term care facilities that they're more vulnerable to the effects of COVID they're more likely to get infected they're more likely to die of it and that is all correct that's mm-hmm. all true. But the other thing that's worth mentioning is that we really are all in this together in the sense that we're all exposed to this brand new virus for the first time. And I think that psychologically in a hospital, for instance, frontline healthcare workers feel more vulnerable as they mm. look after patients. They feel more personally vulnerable. They feel as if, you know, they're as uncertain, they're as uncertain about the correct way to protect themselves. They don't know the absolutely perfect way, effective, most effective way of protecting themselves from COVID-19. Mm-hmm. They do feel a sense, of, a greater sense of danger. And, and, and I think it's important for patients and families to remember that whenever they see a health professional, it, they're not just stoical and I'm here for you. I'm only here for you that the patient's the one with the disease. This is one time when they may be feeling as vulnerable or nearly as vulnerable as their patients. And that is right. absolutely unique and unusual to this time. Sick Boy Podcast will be right back after this very short break. Are vegans actually unhealthy? Does cannabis ruin your sleep? And why are so many men taking testosterone supplements? I'm Mitch. And I'm Greg. And we're the creators of the popular YouTube channel, ASAP Science. Every week on our podcast, Side Note by ASAP Science, we explain the science behind a controversial subject with recent research, up-to-date studies, and ridiculous stories so you are entertained while, bam, simultaneously learning. We're here to make science make sense. Download Side Note by ASAP Science wherever you got your podcasts over the past few months over the past couple months i guess since it's been since you know real shit really hit the fan with this and you got lockdown orders and everything there was a there's a you know i see at least in halifax here i know obviously everybody everywhere is hit a little bit differently in bigger populations like toronto and canada or new york and the u.s and you know not that those two are the 
essentially the same, but bigger populations hit worse than somewhere like Halifax. You know, when I, when I, I, I was traveling, um, in Ecuador and I got home on March 23rd or 24th wow. and, um, lucky and, you got home. Yeah, it was a very, oh, it, it was a very yeah, it was crazy a, it situation. It was an adventure to get him back here. Yeah. And I got home and, you know, when we landed, uh, I mean, it was like, you know, if you were outside, I was on quarantine for two weeks, but I got the sense that if you were outside and you walked by a person, it was like, ah, like get away. Like, like even if you were on the other side of the street, it was like, holy shit, I'm near somebody. This is bad. Yep. And, and now, and now, you know, two months have passed and, you know, we sort of data trickles in and the situation in Halifax is what it is. And now it's like, okay, now we can pass each other on the sidewalk with a mindful distance and that's okay. And you can see somebody, you know, in the street and stop and have a conversation from six feet away and that's okay. And people feel differently. Has, has that, has that alleviated, has, have you seen the same sort of transformation in the hospital in the way that, you know, it's like absolutely dire from the time that it was that, that all this started to like, you know, maybe a little bit more, um, you know, now that we've gathered all the information or we have a lot more information at hand, we don't have to be as, um, I don't want to use the word paranoid cause I think that sounds a little bit, uh, maybe a little bit too harsh, but, um, a little bit more realistic about, about the protocols and the things that we have to have in place in hospitals. You know, I think that, that it's better you know, as we work our way through the through the first wave of, of COVID-19, we have, you know, more experience, we have more data. But don't forget, you know, things, you know, there is there, there is a great deal of uncertainty. There continues to be a great deal of uncertainty about mm-hmm. COVID-19. Yeah. And and that has been expressed in in changes in in protocols, changes in <laughs> recommendations. You know, one time you you know, wearing a mask was was worthless and then suddenly the Public mm-hmm. Health Agency of Canada said maybe everybody should wear a mask and and that seems to be a raging a raging debate. You mm-hmm. know, all the things that we're trying to kind of nail down as certain facts. You know, for instance, you take this test and if it's negative, you don't have COVID-19. Well, the one they've been using at the White House has a 15% false negative rate, which means mm-hmm. that you might have COVID and 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 the test may be negative. The mm-hmm. antibody test, um, it tells me I've been infected. Maybe it doesn't. It tells me that I'm, that I, that I'm, you know, I can, at least for the next few months, I can breathe a sigh of relief. I'm not going to get reinfected with COVID because I've already been infected. Well, maybe it doesn't. Kids are, are, are not particularly vulnerable to COVID. Well, maybe they are. And, mm. and, you know, I think that, you know, the media, social media have, has amplified the uncertainty. And, yeah. and, and this is, this gets back to what I was saying about we're, we're all in this together. Uh, health professionals, are not only uh, the frontline workers; they're also consumers of the very same media that that everybody's being exposed to, with right. all these mixed messages and all these contradictions. Mm-hmm. And and really, we're you know, I I think that uncertainty is going to continue until we have a vaccine. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, I hope we're going to have one. If we you know, if we have one at the beginning of 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 uh, twenty twenty one, that will be the fastest vaccine on record. That was at, created the, from scratch. Right. And at the beginning yeah. and, of the show, and, you said yeah. why you said that COVID would be with us for a long time. Is that is that kind of what where your thoughts are with that in terms of like the vaccine that, you know, until there's a vaccine. Yeah. Yeah. I, this we are. I, this thing's going to be hanging over the society's head. You know, the, the people, you know, some the and, and, you know, this gets, you know, there are meta themes that we're talking about it again and again. You know, who, who are the public health? Who are the, the infectious disease experts that I trust the most? The ones who say humbly, you know, we got that first part wrong and now and this is what we think now. 
I trust them. Mm-hmm. And and I and and especially if they aren't defensive about about why they changed their minds, and you know maybe it's it's a bunch of papers that have been discredited, or maybe they're not the best quality papers because that's another issue. Uh, and 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 papers, you know, scientific studies that have been submitted and published, some of them have been retracted. And 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 uh, so, but but to answer your question, um, you know, because this is a brand new infection that could potentially infect eighty percent of us. By the time it's done, and it's going to take, you know, if you look at Spanish flu, it took three years to work its way around the world. Uh, until we have a vaccine, um, it's 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 going to take several seasons uh, to to work its way through the population. And and yeah, I think once we have a vaccine, we'll have it. And and you know, I I'm hoping and praying because because you know the people who make vaccines, the people who study the effectiveness of vaccines, seem to think that this one is you know this coronavirus is something they ought to be able to make an effective vaccine against. So so I have no reason to doubt that. Uh, will it be a permanent solution? May not. It may be that the 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 virus mutates you know quickly enough or slowly enough that that an annual you know one shot every year or every every right. two two years may be necessary. But I like think a, that's like what a we're flu shot, towards. like a flu yeah, shot. That's right. Exactly. Yeah. I know. I know that we're like we could still be early on in this really in the grand scheme of things if this goes on for another 12 to 18 months at least. But but uh, I am curious oh, to know your thoughts on on the fact that, you know, obviously uh, this pandemic has highlighted a lot of shortfalls in uh, in healthcare and uh, specifically in Canada. Uh, I'm curious to to hear what you would say that you hope we learn from all of this. Mm. Yeah. Uh, there are there are there are a whole bunch of these. I guess the first one is is that um you know we have um you know I think that 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 uh you know we've seen a flowering kind of like a renaissance in virtual medicine. And, you know, the idea that you don't have to be physically in front of your healthcare provider to receive medical care is something that, you know, that was in development. It was happening. I think if anything, privacy, you know, obsession about, about not violating privacy has just been the third rail of innovation when it comes to, to, you know, being able to snap a photo of your rash and show it to the doctor or, or, you know, take a picture of your, of your eye, of your retina to see, to see if you've got glaucoma or if you've got, uh, uh, if you've got macular degeneration and, 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 you know, those, you know, that revolution has been waiting, has been put on hold because of privacy and COVID has kind of brought it to the forefront. I hope that we don't go back. You know, I hope yeah. that we have more, you know, more virtual health care uh, and that and that the next generation of, of health care providers is learning how to manage the technology and 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 is learning to figure out when I need to see the patient in front of me and when I don't. Mm-hmm. And 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 that, you know, the, the, when they go to school, that they'll be learning about how to do a proper physical examination or take a proper history, uh, you know, in, in a virtual environment instead of in, in the flesh. So that's one thing that I think is going to change. Um, I think that that, uh, you know, I think we'll have less of an obsession with privacy as an end to itself, as if privacy, violating privacy is a crime. You know, it's treated, you know, we want to have zero tolerance to privacy, but I think it's acted as a break, you know, as a block to innovation. And I think that that has to change. 
Um, I think that that um, you know the idea that that um, the the healthcare provider is 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 the leader of the team, and that the patient and their family is somehow is the follower. You know, I, I, I certainly one of the things that I've seen we promoted on White Coat Black Art, and 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 I think is 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 a trend that is is well past its time. Is the idea that patients and their families uh, can can learn what they need to learn. They certainly know how to manage. Uh, their own chronic diseases, parents who know how to manage the chronic diseases of their kids and can, can, can manage technology, you know, fragile kids at home and their parents looking after them. You know, they know so much mm. about healthcare and, 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 and they have so much to teach healthcare providers about how to make the system more consumer friendly and better. And, mm. and, you know, we've seen, for instance, when, when we look at, you know, looking at COVID-19, you know, the disaster that occurred in long-term care, you know, people like the, like the, the majority of the deaths that we've seen in this country are people who have died in long-term care. And it was a disaster waiting to happen. And, 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 you know, one of the, one of the trends that, that I think, you know, one of the, one of the unfortunate developments with COVID-19 was the barring of visitors, loved ones, essential family care providers from long-term care and from hospitals. And, and, you know, we have now, we've had people who have died in hospital without a loved one there to hold their hand. And, and, uh, you know, you know, we've created trauma that, that will not soon be forgotten. And I, you know, I hope that's one of the lessons that we've learned Mm. from this, that, that, that we can teach essential family members infection control. They often know it better than frontline workers because they have to, they've had to protect the, the, and guard the health of their, of loved ones. And, and, and that's something that I hope we also have learned from. Do you think, uh, like, on that note of of kind of like secondhand uh, damage from the um, precautions that we've taken, um, that may be seeming a little bit like an overreaction now. Do you think that um, there's been enough thought and consideration put into the health of um, people as a whole um, in the way that we've set up these like crazy? Um, restrictions and things that are in place right now. Yeah, so so I think it's all been focused on trying to to flatten the curve and prevent the spread of COVID nineteen, which is not an unworthy goal. Um, but uh, you know, I think we were. You know, I, I think you're absolutely right. Um, you know, that has been, you know, as, a, as the main goal, it has been at the expense of a whole bunch of other things. So for instance, uh, flattening the curve, if it sends the mixed message to people, you should think twice about going to the hospital. Um, we have people with heart attacks who haven't gone to the hospital, people with pneumonia, uh, mm. people who have had appendicitis and waited an extra day or two so that by the time they came to the hospital, they had a burst appendix, which is a much more complicated form of appendicitis to try to treat. And we have so many examples like that. But in addition to that, those are the obvious you know, physical impairments that, that we have visited on people through this flattening the curve and avoiding unnecessary exposure of vulnerable patients to COVID-19. But to the other point that you're raising, uh, we have ignored the mental health 
issues that are directly flowing from this the depression the anxiety which which are you know the, the they've been called the echo or the second wave of covid-19 and they loom much larger i think they're going to be much bigger you know i think we're going to have a, a traumatized cohort of people who've lost a loved one during during covid-19 you know i think i think young people uh who who are wondering you know whether they're going to university, whether they're going to graduate from high school, what kind of a job are they going to have, you know, when this, what's the new economy, you know, all they're seeing are, are you know, there are people, you know, there are kids who are, you know, 28, 30, 32, who had a pretty decent job, and now suddenly they don't have a job at all, and they have no idea what's coming next. And, 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 you know, rates of depression, rates of anxiety, rates of substance use, rates of, of domestic violence are all on the rise. And, and, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, I think that, that not paying attention to that is going to come back and bite us in the ass in the, in the months and years to come. It, it's so I, I, overwhelming to like, think mm-hmm. about yeah. all of those things. And it, you know, it, it speaks to the point of like having, you know, just using the example of the ER doctor who tries to solve the problem on their on their own, say twenty years ago or whatever. But like, this is it speaks to the point of why we need a system that communicates and is collaborative, that works together, because it's impossible for any one person mm. to mm. to acknowledge, understand, and study and solve all of these problems at the same right. time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, go ahead. No, go, no, ahead. go ahead. Well, I was I was going to say that I I, I was. Um, uh, Eric uh, Eric Weinstein um, Eric Weinstein, who's on uh, Joe Rogan's podcast pretty frequently, described um, described the thing that we're going through right now, or sorry, I, I guess more so like the period between World War II and um, and now as the long nap that there has been that there hasn't been this like global like yeah. extremely global shaking event um, from you know. From from generations, and that 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 most of the people that live on this planet have never gone through something that has shaken the entire globe, and that we just have a lack of process and ex- processes and experience yep. with handling something like this. And then you've got people like you know Bill Gates who have been shouting from the rooftops that you know the next World War Three is going to be a pandemic that ravages the earth, and you know maybe and 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 the idea that. You know, maybe, and I don't want to sound crass and say and and make it out that COVID isn't something that has you know obviously taken thousands of lives and 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 wreaked havoc in many places, but that comparatively to something that you know like a pandemic that could you know be killing um, you know healthy thirty year olds you know by the by the thousands every single day. Um, that this might be an opportunity where we learn a lot about what to put in place and to, and, and, and so that in the future we can consider those things like when we shut down an economy and we, and we lot and we have stay at home orders that we are considering the repercussions like mm. anxiety and depression and what it means to yeah. be locked down in your home and the impacts that that has and, and, and approach a future situation that might be similar or worse, we have you know like a better understanding and a better knowledge of how to approach it. Yeah, because yeah, I mean, this isn't this isn't going to be the only time that we experience this. Maybe it'll be the only time that that you know that the four of us experience this. Mm-hmm. But you know, like Taylor, if you and Kyla had a had a child today, there's there's a 
pretty good chance that they'll experience something similar. You know, like th- this is this will reoccur. You know, and and it could be, it could be way worse than it currently is. You know. Yeah, you know, I, I, it's interesting. Um, you know, uh, if, if if you if you think about how much it might have cost, say four months ago, five months ago, to have uh, to have said we're going to test everybody, and we're going to test them repeatedly, and we're going to we're going to cooperate, and we're going to have the best surveillance program in the world. Um, I'm I'm willing to bet that it would have cost a tenth mm. or maybe even less mm. of what it's costing in terms of shutting down these economies. Yeah. And, and, but you know, it's, it's a little bit like that sort of anti-vax, anti-vaccination movement. Um, you know, it's very hard to prove a negative. It's hard to prove that you, that, that, that getting that measles, mumps, rubella shot kept you from getting the measles. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it allowed, you know, in, in, not only, we weren't just asleep. We thought we were masters of everything. We thought mm. we were masters of disease and masters of the environment and masters of our fate. And, and so that, and so that, you know, when you have that, that view that, that, that everything is perfect and everything is controllable by human beings, uh, in our favor, uh, you begin to say, you know what, I'm really concerned about the side effects of this treatment and that treatment. And that becomes the thing that we care about. Yeah. Uh, and, and so, you know, it's not just being asleep, it's being complacent and, and, and it's, it's forgetting the lessons, you know, for instance, you know, we're now, we're now 75 years from the end of the second world war and none of us were around for that. Um, and we think it's absolutely un, unfathomable that, yeah. that, that people, that, that countries would start, uh, would start lobbing bombs at one another. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, you know, until it happens, until right. we're in the middle of it. And then, and then, and then we'll understand, you know, yeah. what it's, what it's like. But I, but I guarantee you, had we been vigilant, you know, had we been taking the messages of public health, if we hadn't, you know, if, if we hadn't trusted, uh, you know, each nation to take care of their own, their own local outbreaks, uh, then, then, you know, then maybe we might have been able to, to, to avoid some of the misery that, that, that's being visited on the world right now. Uh, and, and, you know, uh, it's very easy to say we're set up for the next pandemic, you know, to be prepared for the next pandemic because we had this one. Mm. Uh, the other thing, I guess the other thing I want to say about this is that, is that a lot of people thought H1N1 was the, the hundred year pandemic. Mm. And I think that we thought whew, we dodged it. It turned out to be a big nothing burger. And so we don't have to worry about it. And this one sneaked up on us. Mm-hmm. And, and unfortunately, I think, I think, you know, it's, it's an old story of, of failing to learn from history and, and yeah. therefore repeating it. But you, it's, like, say, it's like every time a, a hurricane comes to Nova Scotia, the, it, we, we get like a hurricane warning in Nova Scotia and, 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 and so many people go, ah, they do this all the time. It's, it's not going to be that bad. And sometimes they're right there. It's just a, it's just a little bit of gust of wind, you know, uh, maybe 80 kilometer per hour winds that night and, uh, and everything's all good. But then, you know, like five years later, that one hurricane does come by and it just fucking tears through town and just destroys everything. And yeah. people are like, oh, yeah. we weren't, uh. I thought it was going to be one of those fake ones again. The thing that I think that is is scary is that complacency, and and also, um, you know, something that 
like ta- is is taking a is a lot slower of a pro- process that's easier to be com- more complacent when it comes to this is is the environment and you know i'm mm. i'm not i'm not a scientist so um i can't speak to this from a scientific perspective but it does scare the shit out of me thinking about you know like if at, at least at least coronavirus was um happened fast enough that you know it it created the sense of urgency uh, amongst um everybody around the world but th- the reality is is that the environment is also uh an a, an illness that's just waiting to um kill us all eventually <laughs> if we yep. don't address the problems right now and and it's like that's the my sadness through all of this is that we like it the the bit of hope that i took from all of this so far is that like oh wow we actually do have the ability to react as one global um uh, group to try to fend off this thing that's trying to kill us all mm-hmm. but you know can't we take some of that and see how if we could just prioritize uh, the environment, how, you know, that's something else that we could fix. And, and, you know, I, I want to slow down what you said because it's so important and it went by really quickly. You said this happens so fast, coronavirus. What you mean, what I think you mean is that what we don't do about the environment might take 75 or 100 years and we'll all be dead by the time our children and grandchildren are living with the consequences with it. Exactly. Whereas with COVID-19, when it's 250,000 Americans dying instead of 80,000 Americans, they're going to know bloody well in about six months. Right. And, and there's a huge difference between those, between those two. And certainly in the case of a pandemic, we ought to know better. We ought to know what we're up against. But even then, you're having what are we ha- what are we arguing about today? What are they arguing about today in politics? You've got the politicization of facts. Yeah. And they're arguing about the death rate. They're saying there are actually people and people have actually repeated this to me. You know, they're they're exaggerating the death rate. You know that mm. it, not as many people have died, and yes, it's an estimation. Uh, you know, it's an extrapolation based on on based on you know what's considered excess mortality from what we would expect if the pandemic weren't here, if COVID nineteen weren't mm. here. But but there are actually people who believe that that uh, there are doom and gloomers who are saying more people are dying than are actually dying because they don't want Donald Trump to get reelected. And, uh, and, you know, we can't even agree on, well, we can't agree on facts anymore. Mm -hmm. So, so, I mean, that's a whole other issue, but you're absolutely right. The speed of this ought to make people know better. Um, we're coming up to time here, but before we, before we do start to wrap it up, I want to just come back to, uh, your most recent book, The Power of Kindness. And, uh, you know, to, to me, the, the, to, to, to take on the, uh, the mission of of going out into the world to, to on a search for what what kind kindness truly looks like seems seems to be like one of the one of the most fascinating and 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 like rewarding social self social experiments one can one can take on um i so i guess this is a, a kind of a two part question the first one is um how did doing the the research for a book like that shift your perspective on what what kindness means to you personally and then and then on top of that has has that has that had an effect on the way that you've been um 
seeing things play out within this like this pandemic world that we're currently living in like like what kind of what kinds of acts of kindness have you been have you been observing now that you've you've taken so much time to really dig deep into what kindness means all right so so let's take them one at a time so first of all the journey uh, mm. my journey uh you know going out into the world basically the book the launching point the the jumping off point for the book was being accused of unkindness by a patient, by a fam, not a patient. She she had passed away, but by her family, mm-hmm. and and it was not uh, an accusation of incompetence, which you know we're very good at rationalizing accusations of mistakes and uncon and and incompetence because there are a lot of gray areas when it comes to that. But when someone accuses you of unkindness, mm. they got you busted. You're busted. You can't you can't <laughs> say I wasn't unkind. <laughs> Right. <laughs> you know, I came, you know, so in this situation, I had, you know, I was asked uh, by a family to to admit uh, their loved one to the hospital. She was at the end stage of a, of a degenerative disease and, and they had reached the point where they could no longer look after her. And I, I did what they asked, but I didn't I did it grudgingly. And and I all the while I was thinking that I was going to have a hard time convincing the the admitting team to take on this patient and, and I was feeling helpless and in between the two services. And I manifested that discomfort with unkindness. And, and, you know, Mm. it took hours for the, for the admitting service to actually see this woman because she wasn't ill enough to be the, the sickest patient that they should run and see her. There were every time a sicker patient arrived, they had this triage thing, they would treat the sicker patient. And so, and so, Every time I walked by the cubicle, this took hours, like eight hours for the admitting team to actually see this, this woman. Every time a family member, I walked by, a family member would ask, did you, you know, when will my mother get a bed? When she sees the, the internist, when will she see the internist? I don't know. Can you estimate when she'll see the internist? And after about the 17th time, the daughter raised a Spockian eyebrow and asked me in an accusatory way, did you actually make the referral? And I snapped at her. Uh, I said, I did what you asked. And I walked away. And she got admitted. She passed away a few weeks later as expected. And and then I got this beautifully handwritten note from the man, from the husband, who accused me of unkindness. And I met with the mm. family. And this was the launching point for the book. And And I had to find out, kind of unpack, why was I unkind in that moment? And the reason I talk to you about shame is that is that I was defensive, and that defensiveness is a symptom of feeling shame, feeling uh, powerless. And and eventually, I met with the family. They told their story. I listened. They cried, and I cried. And and you know, a really weird thing happened. Um, I've been giving lots of speeches on kindness, uh, and I was at a synagogue, you know, before COVID nineteen hit. And I was giving a presentation and in walked three people. And, you know, one of them said to me, do you remember me? Do you remember us? And it was them. Mm. Um, this happened 25 years ago. And wow. and and uh, they said to me, you know, at, during that meeting that, that we had, you said you'd never forget us. And I said, boy, you have no idea. And they and they sat down for the presentation. And at the beginning of this presentation, I told their story like they were slack jawed. Oh, my God, you really did remember us. Mm -hmm. And 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 and, you know, so so when I went out into the world to find the kindest people on the planet to to recount their acts of kindness, but to ask 
Why are you kind? I wanted to answer the big questions like, are you born, were you born this way? Um, was it misfortune? And what I found is that I think a lot of people in this world are, we're all born with kindness unless you're a sociopath and, and, and most of us aren't. Uh, so what gets in the way of that? Uh, misfortune, disappointment, shame, loneliness, um, uh, a problematic upbringing, um, you know, uh, you're not, not getting emotional support when you're growing up. And I think each of us, if we ask ourselves, am I a kind soul? Uh, am I still a kind soul? That if we, if we have reason to doubt it, it's because something has gotten in the way and you have to either address it or be consumed by it. Mm. And, you know, for instance, Ted Fontaine, who's in the book, uh, Ted Fontaine, uh, went to two residential school, uh, schools and experienced unspeakable abuse of all kinds. He drank when he got out of, of the residential school system. He nearly died and he reached the point in his life where he could either die or, uh, learn to 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 use the experience the humiliation the pain and suffering to empathize with others and and so you know i did a ted talk without knowing the ted talk was was the idea to be uh was was to be a beacon of empathy for other people who make mistakes so that you understand mm. and 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 that's that is the mission of that ted talk i've had hundreds of people you know who have said you know i i I made a mistake and I thought I was the only one. And then I, I watched your TED talk and I realized I'm not the only one. I've learned to empathize with people who make mistakes mm. instead of, you know, empathizing with the, with the people who are perfect, who are the heroes. Mm. Uh, mm. And, 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 you know, how has that changed me? How, how, how do I interpret that in, in, in the modern world? We have two drives in our brains, we are hardwired to be kind and empathic. That's elemental. It's basic. It's vanilla. Um, we have this other drive within nanoseconds to look at the face of somebody or listen to the tone of their voice or their accent or the words they use or, or how they dress and decide, are you a member of my group mm. or are you a member of the other group? Are you us or are you them? And, and, you know, so important these days in the world of COVID-19 because, because we, we see threats everywhere. You see it when you walk, you were talking about this, you walk into traffic and, and people are looking at you like, oh, there's COVID-19, I'm about to get infected. Mm. And they walk diagonally away from you. You know, I call it, I've invented a word, I call it diagonizing. <laughs> uh, when they, you know, when they have that look of horror on their face and they walk diagonally away from yeah, you, it's yeah, called yeah. diagonizing. Oh, who are you? Yeah. And, 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 you know, the people who are going to come out of COVID-19, the healthiest are the ones who recognize that that person could be me and I could be them. And I, and that's when you, when you recognize that that person who comes from, a, you know, marginalized circumstances has precarious housing could be you. But for a few lucky breaks, then you want to help them. Your your instinct for kindness comes to the fore. And, and that's the thing that I think that's the most important thing that I've learned. And if anything, it's been amplified. And it's so important these days when you hear messages like Donald Trump, you know, constantly talking about, uh, you know, the barbarians at the gate or building a wall or blaming mm. it on, on, you know, the infection, the pandemic on, on, on people from another country and, 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 and inviting people to divide the world into us and them, which is not going to be helpful in this world. 
Very Brian, man, this, yeah, yeah, this was, uh, this has been just, uh, better than, than we could have imagined. I think, uh, like I said, you, you've been, you've been on our list to, to be on the show for quite a while. And, uh, it truly is an honor to, to have had a, an hour to, to pick your brain and to, to hear your thoughts. And, um, I'm, I'm eternally grateful for, for having this opportunity. Um, Brian, what you want to chime in there? Yeah, we need to make this a more regular thing. I, I was thinking <laughs> the same thing. Th- there's so many yeah. more uh, questions and things that I want to ask there, you, and and are. also um, uh, I would have loved to have done this in person too. So yeah, for sure. Yeah. Uh, Me too. Once this is once we're allowed to be uh, in the same room together, uh, I'd love to get together again and and mm-hmm. catch up. Yeah, well, listen, I enjoyed sure. talking to, to to you too. It's been great pleasure. Yeah. Thank you. Um, and thank you all so much for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed it. Uh, we will be back next week, as we always are, with another wonderful conversation. But in the meantime, if you want to support the podcast, there's a number of ways you can do that. You can go to Apple Podcasts, leave a rating and a review, and hit the subscribe button. And then tell uh, five strangers that, that you see that you are diagonalizing across the street from to do the exact same thing. <laughs> um, and just to make it a little less weird. Uh, and you can also uh, support the podcast um, with your with your wallets uh, if, if you if you like it that much uh, mm-hmm. by going to patreon.com slash sick boy uh, yeah if you feel so inclined uh, head on over patreon.com slash sick boy um, we've got lots of cool things uh, going on on our patreon it's an amazing community um, and in this uh, virtual world that is uh, the COVID-19 era um, if you want to call it that uh, our patreon community has 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 really uh, shown its true colors and been really amazing. Mm-hmm. And uh, we are grateful for each and every one of you. So if you'd like to be a part of that community and support the podcast that way, patreon.com slash sickboy. Uh, and thanks, as always, to Donovan, the CPAP Morgan, for the amazing sound design on this show. Hey, uh, Jer and Taylor, I just need to borrow you guys for this part for a second. I want you guys to imagine that you're walking down the street at one another, and then all of a sudden you catch each other's eyes, and you you got to diagonize, Mm -hmm. but you're going to have a conversation, and I want Donovan to make it sound like you're fading away from each other as you're talking, and I and I'm picturing a cityscape in the background. Okay, cool, 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 cool. cool. Yeah, don't don't look don't look at me. Don't breathe on me. Okay, okay, okay. Yeah, do not breathe on me. Okay, okay. I want get away from me. Hey, I want to be friends. I want to be friends with you. No, no room for friends. I've got enough friends. They're all online. No, we can use Zoom. <laughs> thanks, Donovan, and thanks, Tate Park, for the theme music. <laughs> That's a fucking stupid. Thanks for setting us up with that, Brian. <laughs> uh, that is it for this week. I'm Brian. I'm Taylor. I'm Jeremy, and this is Sick Boy. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.